0: The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. All right, so the gospel according to Mark. We're going to continue in chapter 3. we began a section on Wednesday night that, depending on how you divide things out, I basically look at that section as beginning in Mark chapter 3 specifically back over, if you will, in verse number 7 and going through approximately verse 19. So Mark 3, 7 through 19. Now, really, there's two contexts that are involved in that. In the first place, we see Jesus and his separation. That's verses 7 through 12, and that's just that period of time when Jesus encouraged his disciples to go ahead and get a little ship readied to put it there on the seaside so that he, if he needed to, and he ultimately would on several occasions if he needed to, that he could separate himself from the throngs. Now, in that case, he was not separating himself simply because he was tired. I would not doubt that in the least, him being human as he was, but was seemingly separating himself more for the purpose so that he might back away from them and teach. Uh, Oftentimes, as he was doing those miracles, those wondrous things, his words were kind of set aside during that period Uh, because of the many people, the multitudes of people that were coming to him. We've already seen that in the previous chapters over and over again, whether he's healing an individual or a collection of people. He's completely willing to do that. But he also emphasizes, we read it several times back in chapter 1 in verse 39, that it was his main intention to preach to them or to teach to them. And so he's going to take that opportunity several more times throughout this book. Obviously, he claimed that that was his main focus, his main purpose in being here nonetheless and so he's going to do that but his separation verses 7 through 12 is where he made a plan if you will to go ahead and do that it also says in that that his disciples followed him and it named a number of people that had thronged upon him a number of people from various nations and so he saw fit to get separated from them to a point now the second section which we were in on Wednesday night as well has to do with his selection, and that is his selection of his disciples. And that is basically verses uh, 13 through 19, the selection of his disciples. And we've already numbered uh, several things that are important in that. I think much of what we said on Wednesday night will be very important to us, really grasping or understanding, perhaps, why he chose the men that he did. And that's kind of the theme of uh, today's additional lesson, if you will, kind of a bonus or a continuation lesson in that is just kind of determined why would he choose men like these? Those men that Jesus did choose were ordinary. Uh, they were people just like you and me. They had no real main qualifications for them. They had nothing about their lives that would have made them most likely, and in most cases, at least stand out, uh, perhaps unless you were to say, well, uh, Levi or Matthew stood out because of the work he did as a publican. He would have been hated and he would have been noted and recognized probably in the community. Uh, you might also say something like that uh, about uh, Judas eventually, but we don't know much about him prior to this. He ultimately would be infamous uh, for what he would do, and he would be betraying our Lord and such as that. And, of course, Peter and his denial, there were things that came after he chose them that make them notable, but very little prior to that. So that's kind of where we come down to, him choosing ordinary, uh, very ordinary men. But we know ultimately that he takes those ordinary and brings them into a place where he can use them for the extraordinary. So he makes a ton of progress with these men. I think that's really what we get a, a real bit of a perspective in in the very beginning. Now I put a few sheets on the back. I chose not to hand those out. Uh, don't want to, All of you won't have use for it. But I've got a few sheets on the back that just kind of give a brief. Like two or three sentence paragraph about each of these disciples or apostles as they were about to become. And that may help you a little bit and just kind of understanding and determining who they were so it'll be a sheet that just looks full like that and it says at the top those he called the ordinary becoming extraordinary so that's a part of what's on that sheet and we will make mention of that a little bit later but I think there are a few more important things to get to before we just specifically start talking about their names. so let's reread the context here again it picks up in verse 13 uh, after he had uh, separated himself, verse 13 says, And he, that is Jesus, go up, up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would. And they came unto him. And he, verse 14, ordained the twelve, that they would be with him, and that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal with sickness, to cast out devils. And Simon he surnamed Peter, James the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, and he surnamed him Barogenes, which is to say the sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Altheus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaanite, and also and Judas Iscariot, uh, which also betrayed him, and they went into an house. And so he chooses these men, and the interesting thing about this is this moment he chooses them, they're willing to go. And so I want to show you a little bit about that, at least how I kind of developed this out. I, I'm not a person who really honestly takes a lot of notes. I don't write well. I don't spell well. I don't type well. So that limits me. Usually whatever I have in the margin of my Bible, if that. But I do, on occasion, to share that, I do give a little bit of attention to that. And so on a side note, if you've not seen the PowerPoints lately... I just determined to put more work into these margins than I did in the PowerPoint. But I will share with you a little bit what I have today. Now, as far as that goes, and I don't know that you'll be able to see this on the screen very much, but when you break this text down, there are a few things that are important. One, we consider, at least I do, I consider the call. We mentioned this part on Wednesday night, not in uh, an expanded version, but on Wednesday night we mentioned that the call that he put forth was, in a sense, it was contrasted. It was a contrasted call. And I say that because we represented then that Jesus called these disciples. That is, he went out and just hand-selected, chose each of them. And that would have been a contrast or a difference to the way other teachers of his day would have done it. Other rabbis, if you will, meaning teachers of his day, they selected their men by application. That is, they would have been the men that came to them and basically begged or pleaded with them, please allow me to be your disciple, allow me to be your follower, allow me to be your learner and such. But Jesus didn't do that. He had selected these men out of probably the multitudes of people that were there, but these men weren't necessarily, at least in application of that weren't necessarily just thronging on him and trying to stand out in the crowd at any point and say look i hope you choose me above everybody else here there was a contrast to the way that he called them in the second place i just want to represent this it was also a considered call now we don't have this in matthew's account i mean mark's account necessarily But I told you the other night that if you want to kind of compare these up, we've got a parallel that is found in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 14. So that's one of those, Matthew 10, 1 to 14. We also have another one in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 to 6. And in that context, what we find out in Luke's account, and it's really pieced together over a couple of different things, is that when Jesus went out to select or choose his disciples, He did not do that by happenstance. I want you to go to this one verse. We won't turn that often, just a few times. But I want you to go with me to Luke chapter 6 for just a moment. Again, we've got a parallel in Luke 6 that's to a point. We've got a parallel in Luke 9 as well. But in Luke chapter 6, look with me, if you will, at verse 12. Notice what happened now. In context, context matters. Luke 6 and verse 12, it says this. And it came to pass in those days he, that is Jesus, went unto a mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. Now, you know as well as I do, that was a fairly common practice for Jesus, that he would pull himself away, sometimes early in the morning, sometimes recorded as having doing that all night. The longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus is in John chapter 17 that you're familiar with, and primarily that prayer came down to him praying for Uh, all of the world and also praying specifically for his disciples. But in behind that verse 12, Luke chapter 6 says this, And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples, and he chose twelve whom he would name as apostles. Now this is just suggestion, okay? Uh, Don't quote me by your notes in this, if you will. But I'm of the assumption that if Jesus prayed all night the night before, directly preceding verse... I'm of the assumption he more than likely, at least in a part of that, prayed for his selection. Does anybody agree, disagree with that? Does that make sense? I mean, we've already illustrated, as we were examining prayer just in passing a few weeks ago, how important it was for us to pray for various and different reasons. And one of the main reasons why that context of prayer and fasting we looked at in the preceding chapter Why that came up, in the most cases, it came down to a decision being made. That is some type of important decision being made in life. And us as a Christian seeing the need that we should come before the throne of God and lay that at him and allow him to have input in that. Now, is that going to come by a, a still small voice in our ear? No, nothing like that but to allow ourselves to pray to God and look for God and seek after God's guidance. Now, where would you assume God might have you to turn once you do that? Hopefully, it's where you've just left. You know, hopefully, you spent time in studying and, and, and prayer and maybe even fasting in that case. I won't go back over the whole fasting thing, but spending time to make decisions. So we have Jesus apparently, it's an assumption, but I think very apparent that in Luke chapter six verse twelve and thirteen Jesus prayed just prior uh, to his selecting of his disciples. So it was a considered call; it wasn't by happenstance. Number next, this is important here. I believe Jesus made a courageous call in this, because what Jesus ultimately does, and this is kind of the rest of the story, if you will, this what Jesus ultimately does when he chooses these twelve and selects these 12 out of these very unsuspecting, very common type of men. He basically spat in the face of the whole religious group, such as the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the Herodians had just kind of come together to try to kill him preceding context and such. He basically spits in the face of all the religious leaders. Do you think perhaps, of course, they weren't necessarily thronging to follow Jesus either, but wouldn't you think perhaps it might make good common sense in that day, and I'm speaking human common sense in that day, for Jesus to choose or select his disciples out of those who were already extremely religious, those who were already well-known, those who already had clout, those who already had uh, some type of a position in the community, especially in the religious community, that, that would make sense, if you will. But that's not at all what he did. Jesus actually and literally turned the tables, and that's kind of a pun intended on that. He literally turned the tables on these men in order that he may make judgment on them even by choosing his disciples. Now, before we get a little bit farther in this, this is completely for discussion. Why would he choose twelve? I'll give you the answer up front. There's not a real good reason we could prove, but why why might he choose 12? There were 12 tribes, that's one thing. What else? You find the number 12 coming up a number of times, primarily that of the 12 tribes. We see him having 12 baskets of food left over, probably not related at all. We see in some cases the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. You just see the number 12 coming up. As a matter of fact, uh, just in doing a little quick you know, computer-type search of that, it's found 168 times related in Scripture, but not nearly all of those are related directly to, to this type of point. But he chooses 12. We're not sure why, other than perhaps that is kind of a, a showing of his, his willingness to replace what had become the Old Testament way of doing things. You know, those 12 tribes, each of those 12 tribes basically had, had leaders among them. They had men among them that stood out, that had clout, that had religious influence and such. Of course, they were led on two occasions, one by Moses and by Joshua in that. But later on, as they go through, they were independent of themselves to one extent, although under God. But the choosing is a 12. Now, one, he shows them to be corrupted in that. I want you to go back with me, and I, I may be jumping ahead of myself, but go back with me, if you don't mind, um, to, let's see, Matthew chapter 23. Just some insight as to what uh, Jesus thought of many of these religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees, get the, the brunt of all this for their attitude and for the way they treated others. Go back with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 23. And look just what is said here. We won't read the whole chapter, but we'll pick a, a few out just to make sure that we get the idea. Matthew 23, beginning in verse 1, would be okay. And then spake Jesus to the multitude and his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now, is that true or not? It had to be true. He made that statement, so to one extent they did. And then it says, verse 3, And all therefore whatsoever bid you to observe, that observe and do, do not ye after the works, for they, and, for they say, and they do not. For they have heavy burdens, and grievous to be borne, and lay on, them, on men's shoulders, but to themselves will not move them with one finger. But all their works they do, they, they are done to be seen of men. They make broad phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the uppermost rooms and the feasts and the chief seats in the synagogue, the greetings in the markets, and to be called the men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ. And all of you are brethren. And no one call no man your father upon earth, for there is one that is your father which is in heaven. Neither be called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he is the greatest among you shall be your servant. Now just, just focus right there. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to his disciples, but about whom? Scribes and Pharisees. And what is he saying about them? In nutshell, that much of it, they're just proud. They're doing everything they can in life to try to separate themselves from everybody else even in the way they look. But he says, they are to tell you to do something, but they wouldn't lift their finger to do it themselves. They're hypocrites. They, they're definitely hypocrites. That is, they're two-faced. So they have a standard under which they want everybody to live, except for oftentimes that doesn't include them in that. And then the last part of that we read, he said, they enjoy the chief seats. They broaden their phylacteries. They broaden their garments. They want you to call them master. They want you to consider them rabbi. But they won't even give Christ the same credit. Look at the next verse. I think we read through verse 11, verse 12. For whosoever shall be exalted himself shall be abased. And he that is humble himself shall be exalted. That's what they lacked, humility. You pick up in verse 13, the woes begin. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he calls them. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go into yourselves, and neither you suffer, suffer ye them that are entering in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites! For you devour widows' houses, and there is a pretense making of long prayer, that you may receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees! And You can read on and on and on. Chapter 23 is all about that. Chapter 23 is Jesus kind of just coming directly at them and saying, these are the things that they do, and that does not measure up. So if you've got those men, scribes and Pharisees, who had clout, who had education, who had, in most cases, riches, who had everything in this life that you could expect as a tool that they could use for right... They in turn turn that around and use that in a boastful way, a hypocritical way, a proud way on these people. When Jesus chooses fishermen, about half of those, four, maybe seven of those is the assumption there. When Jesus chooses tax collectors that were despised, when he chooses one of the zealots, which were... Oftentimes, not saying that he would directly was, but often the zealots were involved in murder. They hated the Roman government, therefore, if they had a half a chance, they, some of them carried knives and were ready to yield them into Roman soldiers. He chooses other men who are so uncommon, or, or so common, I should say, we don't even have any information on them. You know, half of these disciples, or ultimately apostles that are listed here, you know what we know about them? Either who their father was or their brother. We don't have information on who they were, necessarily all of them, or what they did, but yet on the attributes of someone who is known to them. And so that's how they're often called. But he showed them to be corrupted. Now a few more passages. These are more the ones on the screen there. And I would encourage you to read Matthew 23, really on into 24 about the condemnation that would ultimately come to men such as these. But go with me to the book of John for just a moment. So I'll be turning to my right. Look in John chapter 2. A little bit more insight in each of these contexts, I think. John chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Here's what we find. Now this is the time when I said he turned the tables. And this is literally. This is the first time. And after this, he, that is Jesus, went up to Capernaum. And he and his mother and his brethren and the disciples continued. Hold on. That was one I took off. No, there it is. they uh, continued there not many days. And the Jews Passover was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem and found in the temple. I'm in verse 14 now. Those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money. And when he had made a scourge of small cords. Guess how many cords that was made up of. Sometimes we say nine, sometimes we say twelve, and and such as that. And he drove them all into the temple and shut out the oxen and poured out the changes' money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that so dove, Take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered that which is written, The zeal of this house has eaten them up. Now go to the book of Matthew. Matthew shares this in his account as well as others do. Look at Matthew chapter 21. Again, John records that first time when he turns those tables. But in Matthew 21, remember just a moment ago we were in chapter 23. But look what happens in Matthew 21. You have a similar instance, really the same outcome. Matthew 21 beginning in verse 12 in this as well. And Jesus went up into the temple of God and cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables and the money changed and the seats that sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house. Notice he equates that with himself. My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame in the temple, and he healed them. And the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, saying, Hosanna. And they were sore displeased. That's why I read that one. Not only is it the last one, but as soon as he turns those tables over, of course, he aggravates the money changers. But the scribes and the Pharisees come in, see him doing wonderful things, and what do they do? They're displeased. Similar to our context in Mark go back over to Mark for just a moment. Keeping in mind what we said on Wednesday night, hopefully, verse 13 said, He goeth unto a mountain, and he called them whom he would. That is, he got to select the people that he wanted to choose, not what men would have thought. And so even though this may be in stark contrast to their selection, to the way they might have gone about things, he gets to choose who he wants. And that's very different. So it was in that sense, I think, a courageous call. Number next, think about their commission. This is back over in Mark. He takes those men, he chooses those men. Verse 14, and he ordained 12. What are we talk about about the word ordained on Wednesday? Some of you remember. There's another word that was in another translation for sure, appointed. The idea is that he made them into this. As a matter of fact, that word for ordained, as strange as it is, if you were to pull that Greek word up, and I would have to do it by computer because I don't know it off the top of my head, but if you were to pull that word up, it's found hundreds of times, at least in some form. Most of the times it's found, it's translated either as do, doeth, make, or made That's the way it generally is translated. Now, there are times when appointed fits well. There are times when ordained fits as well. This is one of those times the translators at least least believe that it was very descriptive. The point being that he gets to determine, and then he gets to decide. He gets to lay these men out to do his work. Now, what was the specific work? He ordained twelve to be with him, that they might send them forth to preach, and have power to heal, and also sickness, and to cast out devils. So we see the fact that he comes before them and he has a commission for them, and that commission was directly that they might preach. And then secondary to that, that they might be able to cast out devils and heal. Why? We've used a a word for that several times. It's a V. I don't know if that's a real V, but that looks like a V in front of me. Validation. He calls them and gives them value, but he sends them so that they might have validation, okay? So he gives value to men who have none, and then he sends them out so that they might be validated before others. As a matter of fact, I've thought about this a little bit just this morning as I got up early to look at this, and I realized that how important it was that he took men who were learners, they were already part of his disciples, meaning followers of, disciples of, learners of, and he ultimately, in one sense, gave them some authority. He placed them in a position where they would ultimately have some level of authority there. But he ordained those men that he might send them out. That was their commission. Now, look at the confirmation of that. And the fact that he ordained them and in turn confirmed them by giving them these powers. Again, this stood in direct contrast to all the other religious people of the day. All the scribes, the Pharisees, all the ones who would be listed among the Herodians, all the ones that would be listed typically among the Zealots, although he chooses one out of that group. All these other people were in opposition to him as far as not just always his teaching. Many times I would say the Pharisees teaching the base of it would be correct. Of course, they would go too far with that. But he does that for a contrast. This is where I want to go to this next passage. You might be able to see it on the screen. But go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This will be the last time we flip or flop. That's not normally my way of doing things, but we need to see some things. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. I've read this context many times. I'm sure you have as Bible students. But I've never really considered, I think, what type of people he's talking about we hear the words and they ring in our ears and we say well I don't want to be that or I don't want to be this but what types of people he's talking about 1 Corinthians 1 18 beginning he says this for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness but unto us which are saved it is the power of God now I've taken that verse a little bit within its context a lot of times out of its context I would say I, I preached whole sermons from that one verse and just broke that verse out Uh, I think no harm, no foul in that to one extent. But if you're putting this up and you've got, on the one hand, let's just draw the the mental picture. On the one hand, you've got Jesus' chosen apostles that he's about to lay out in Mark's account. On the other hand, you've got the scribes, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders. On the other hand, what's the contrast? If this is the disciples and this side are those who, just for that one verse, who... Uh, appreciate the cross, some see it foolish, some see it as a gift of God and salvation, where do the Pharisees fall? It's foolishness to them. Where do this, I keep swapping these, So where do the disciples fall? I would assume they're ultimately going to fall in the category of those who see it as being that unto salvation. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring nothing, uh, bring nothing to the understanding of the prudent." Which group were wise or considered themselves such? Pharisees versus Jesus' disciples. Most of them may have seemed ignorant to some. Next verse, verse 20. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the dispute of this world? Hath not God made made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. To save them that believed. Who believed in Jesus? For the most part, his disciples or the Pharisees. Contrast. Next, verse 22, 1 Corinthians. For the Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews as a stumbling block to the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called, there's the same word, Both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, same word, brethren, for not many wise, uh, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God had chosen, verse 27, the chosen the foolish things of this world, confound the wise, And God had chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things, verse 28, of this world, which are despised, God had chosen, yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught they that are. No flesh should glory in His presence. And you go on and on to read. That whole chapter, albeit it ultimately ought to describe us on the good side of things, it very well described those apostles. And it showed to me a tremendous contrast between those two groups. So that's what we have as far as their confirmation. Now what about these characters? We read through the list right here. uh, Beginning there in verse 16, he chose Simon, he chose James, he chose John, he chooses Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Altheus, Thaddeus, Simon and Judas. Why? What about those men stand out? What do we know about them? Just pick one. What do we know about Matthew? We we know something about him. What was he? Matthew was Levi. He was the tax collector. What do we know specifically for sure about James and John? Those were the fishermen out of the group. What do we know for sure? Because he tells us, what do we know for sure also was a characteristic of James and John? He called them the sons of thunder. Commonly when we see that, we think of that and we say, well, that probably attributes itself to their attitude. You know, there was a point where even some of his disciples, I think these ones, said, why don't we just call down fire from heaven? Why don't we just take care of this? Why don't we just shut everything down? Why don't we take, just stop this, this movement of the Pharisees? Why don't we stop it right now? What do we know about Peter. He gets credit for about one or two things. I give him credit for the day of Pentecost, which would be wonderful. A lot of what went on there. We call him a word that we do not use in Munford or Ironington or Talladega or Lionville. I promise you, not used it all week. Impetuous. Why don't we use it? Nobody on the street knows what it means anyway. That's the truth. They don't know what it means. We've been taught what it means. It's kind of quick-tongued. He speaks up. What do we know about Thomas? Doubting, Doubting Thomas. That's, that's all he ever will be. He's had so many characteristics other than that that were good. But we know that. what do we know about Judas? Now that one we really can't... Uh, we, we, we must mourn over what Judas ultimately, what his outcome was. Now we know what ends, the means that brought, you know, to us. It brought ultimately salvation because Jesus was betrayed. Jesus in turn was, uh, was crucified. Jesus in turn, you know, rose again, uh, ascended, all that goes on. But we can't really divide Judas from that right there because even in the calling It doesn't matter. There are four lists of these apostles that are given. There's one in Matthew, one in Luke, one in Mark. There's also one in Acts chapter 1. In all of these lists, guess what's said about Judas? (laughs) The one that will betray him. That's who who Judas amounted to. And that's primarily most of the detail that we know about these men. Now as far as significance to a name, I, I look at that. I always appreciate that and Names are given by whom? Let's take our society. Your name was given to you by your parents, okay? And they gave you that name in most cases when? At birth, when you're an infant. Okay, so they can't look at that infant and know specifically what they'll be or what they'll turn out to be. But it is interesting, especially in Scripture, how many times those names turned out to be actual characteristics of who those men will become. Now we know this, we know that Simon that's listed here would also be called Peter. We've heard the discussion on the the occasion when Jesus asked those disciples, who do men say that I am? And of course, Peter, Simon, at that point was willing to stand up. He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He knew precisely who he was. And so Jesus then called him Peter. His name meant something like a stone on both cases, albeit we often say, well, it's a pebble, then a verse is a boulder such as that the name james means supplanter surplanter. what's a supplanter a tricker basically that's the word we used to use a few decades ago tricker you no tricker now i'm having to be named james so what am i going to say about that well that ain't right that don't fit well it may have fit james i don't know that it did it didn't have to for sure we do know this, that James is listed as well as John as being the son of Zebedee in all lists. Who is Zebedee? Don't jump too quick. We don't really know. I mean, the, his name, Zebedee, is mentioned several times and often in association with his children, but we don't know what he was other than he was a business owner and fisherman. But why, why mention Zebedee? Was he prominent in the, in the community around Capernaum? Would he have been well-known? with someone I don't know. Other than oftentimes these men are called by their name and then associated with their father just to, I guess, keep confusion. How many people named John do you know? I mean, you can go on and on. How, about, how, about, how many Joes? How many Peters? How many Marys? And you can go on and on. We know people so we use a system modernly where we use first sometimes middle and last names and even then we have to go on and say well this is junior or this is the second or the third or what happened and that day they often associated with, with them and saying, well this is Peter the son of or in this case James the son of Zebedee or it might even say sometimes this is so and so from so and so so just a little bit of association there of course, James and John being the brothers, sons of thunder. Uh, John's name means Jehovah is gracious. I think we could probably say that about every child that's born, that it's a gift of God, Jehovah's gracious in that. The name Andrew, <clears throat> the brother of Peter, you'll like this. He's here somewhere in this building. It means manly. You like that? Andrew means manly. Where am I looking? I'm not looking at the right Andrew. He ain't here. <laughs> Um, on and on you go we've looked at doubting Thomas already Bartholomew Bartholomew is not even his name his name would have been Nathaniel that's where we associate him he has some good characteristics that we do learn about later but all Bartholomew was was the son of Tolome. so that's the mention of his parent his father you can go on and on with this list now why choose these men? Because Jesus had rejected the leaders that they had. The Jewish nation, not that they had been elected to such, but they had allowed at least these scribes and these Pharisees and others like them to raise themselves up. They had become the leaders of the modern day religion. That's who they were. Jesus, in speaking about these people, we've already read part of Matthew chapter 23, but Jesus, in speaking about these people, called them hypocrites, Matthew 23, 13 to 29. We saw that. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, and hypocrites. He called them blind guides, Matthew 23, 16 to 24. Blind guides who strain in a gnat and swallow a camel. He called them whitened sepulchres or tombs, Matthew 23, 27 and 28. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. For ye are likened to white house tombs or whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear to be beautiful but are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. He called them broods of vipers, Matthew 12 and verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are doing evil? He said that they strained at a gnat and swallow a camel, already mentioned there. You're blind leading the blind. He said they were washed, washed on the outside of the cup. Matthew 23, 25, and 26. He said, Woe unto you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside is full of greed, self-indulgence, or evil, blind Pharisees. And you clean, and then I just, I don't know why I put that in there a second time, and the generation of vipers as well. So Jesus rejected those who are presently the leaders of that group, and he replaced them With his chosen men. Now, I may have said this earlier, in some senses, that had to feel like a spit in the face to them. This is a man who already, they didn't understand what he meant by that, but he goes into the temple, turns those tables over. He goes back into the temple on that triumph and entry type period, that last week of his life. He goes in there and lets them know, I'm going to destroy everything you see here. Every bit of this is going to fall down and raise itself back up. And he's talking about himself, but they took it wrongly. He rejects these men over and over and over, and then he chooses who he chooses, which would probably have gone against most of their choice, and he raises them up in the face of them. We're out of time. Questions, comments, additions? All right, talked real fast, and y'all stay real quiet. That's what happened. Thank you.